All right, please turn to Psalm 68. That is what we'll be considering tonight. And you'll notice from the call to worship, the songs that we're singing tonight, and now the psalm that we'll be considering, um, uh, a common theme of the might and the strength and the power and the victory of our Lord. So we're going to read all the way through Psalm 68. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O oh God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word to the women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil, though you men lie among the sheepfolds. The wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shivering, the shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan. O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation, the Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them in the lead, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the people who delight in war. Noble shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. 
To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Let's pray. Father, again, bless this word. We thank you for your inspired word. And Lord, we ask that you would use this time as a means of grace to help us to comprehend, to apprehend what you're saying to us in this text. Help us to be able to apply it and to live it out by the power of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So this psalm, Psalm 68, is a psalm of conquest. And, you know, as you can tell very easily throughout, this is a psalm of victory. God winning decisive, resounding victory over all of his enemies. And it begins with that strong, forceful opening. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered. The very first line describes the enemies of God scattered when he rises up. That when God stands, when God God decides that it's time to execute just judgment on the people, on his enemies. There is no hope for them. They don't pose the least of a threat. You think about Psalm 2, where it said that God uh, mocks those who conspire against him, that God holds them in derision, that when God decides that it's time to judge the wicked, they pose no threat. They melt like wax. They flee like cowards. And so, as always, when it comes to these scenes of judgment, you have on the one side, the judgment, the destruction of the wicked, but then on the other side uh, is salvation for God's people. And oftentimes, we don't like to consider judgment. We love talking about salvation. We love talking about, uh, you know, the redemption and victory for the people of God, but we don't like as much to talk about judgment, and yet... Without judgment, there is no salvation. Deliverance for the righteous means destruction of the wicked. Mercy for the people of God requires justice for the enemies of God. And so you see here in the very beginning of the psalm, in verse 3, the righteous are glad. They're exalting before God and they're jubilant with joy. So at the destruction of the wicked, at the judgment of the unrighteous, you have God's people rejoicing, uh, exalting, jubilant with joy, worshiping God. And so the psalm of victory that we're considering tonight opens up with this confident assertion of God's power to rout the enemy, to absolutely crush the enemy until there is no trace of wickedness remaining. And not only the assertion that God is able to do this, but the conviction that he will do this. And that's what we're going to be considering tonight is David's confidence in God's victory and the fulfillment of that victory in history through Christ. And this this psalm, this kind of spirit of joy and confidence and uh, you know just that being able to go forth into battle, trusting that God is going to be victorious. This makes sense coming from David. 
David was the archetype. He was the prototypical warrior king. We know that David, uh, he, he fought in the army under Saul's reign. And then while David was king during his kingship, there was constantly battles that were going on. David had firsthand knowledge and experience of staring down a seemingly undefeatable enemy and then seeing God uh, emerge victorious with Goliath. David understood that personally. He had this confidence in the power and in the strength of God, and this was manifested in his own life. For David, the power, the strength of God, the ability of God to defeat his enemies, it wasn't just this theoretical doctrine that he held. It's not as if David in his mind affirmed that God is omnipotent, but that was all. David lived according to this reality. He lived according to this faith that God was powerful enough to destroy and conquer even the mightiest enemy. He actually lived as if all power belonged to God. And so it's not surprising to see this kind of confidence that we find in Psalm 68 flowing from the pen of David. And not only does David have confidence because of the strength and the power of God manifested in his own life, but he also looks back in history to see what God has done. So if you go down to verse 7, he's remembering the exodus from Egypt. David is bringing to mind God's victory over Egypt, leading his people out of slavery, delivering his people from bondage, and bringing them to life in the promised land. And so he says, God, you went out before your people. You marched through the wilderness. The earth quaked. The heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai. And then he goes on and says that you restored your inheritance as it languished. His people languishing under the yoke of slavery. His people unsure. Has God forgotten his promises? Has God forgotten the covenant? Is God not strong enough to deliver us from the hand of Pharaoh? But God demonstrated his strength and power in history by delivering his people out of Egypt. And he put on display publicly for all the surrounding peoples to see because the, the surrounding nations heard about what God had done in Egypt, and that was passed on through history that people heard about what happened to the Egyptians and how the Israelites came out from slavery by that mighty hand of their God. What God was doing was publicly putting to shame Egypt and her gods, specifically Pharaoh, who was held to be uh, a son of the gods. And Yahweh delivers his people. He shows the world his power by conquering the greatest empire of that day. He humiliated Pharaoh. He decimated his household and he plundered those whom Pharaoh was holding as slaves. And again, in that instance, just as here in Psalm 68, and just as it always is, judgment on the enemy meant deliverance for God's people. The justice being executed on Egypt meant redemption of the people of Israel from slavery. And David understands this to be a direct and personal attribution of power to the living God. You notice in verse 7, at the end of it, you have that word Selah, 
which we understand means it indicates for us to pause, to consider, to reflect on what's just been said. And he puts that there after verse 7, God going out before the people and marching with them through the wilderness. And we're to pause and to consider this image of God himself going forth with the people of Israel out of Egypt, God marching before his people, actually leading his people to victory, that manifestation of God visible right there going out and defeating the enemy. And you remember Moses, when God said that his angel would no longer go with the people of Israel, Moses was devastated and he interceded and he pleaded with God that if your angel, if the angel of Yahweh is not going up before us, then there's no point for us to do this. They understood that without God, there would be no victory, but with God going before them, victory was certain. And David here in this psalm is evoking those uh, that historical reality of God going in the midst of his people, leading them against an enemy that was mightier than they, that was stronger than they, and absolutely humiliating the enemy and delivering his people So David is drawing, he's looking back on Israel's history and really God's history of victory. And from there, he's deriving hope for the future. And that's what this psalm does. It both looks back and it looks forward. It's bookended by confidence in God's total victory in all his enemies in verses 1 through 3. I'll read those one more time. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so shall you drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God, but the righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. So it opens up with this confidence that God is going to defeat his enemies. And then if you turn to the end of the psalm, it closes with the proclamation of that victory. So it begins with saying, God is going to conquer all of his enemies. And then it ends by saying, God has conquered all of his enemies. So if you look at verses 32 through 35, kingdoms of the earth sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice, ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. So you have the psalm bookended with confidence in God's victory and then the proclamation of God's victory where he is looking forward to all the powers of darkness, all of the nations, all the kingdoms of the earth coming and worshiping the true and living God. So this is a psalm of promise and of looking forward to definite fulfillment. There's no question of God's total victory. David is proclaiming and looking forward with certainty to the day of God's victory. And this fits right in with the rest of the Old Testament. So kind of the undercurrent of the Old Testament, the meta narrative, if you will, throughout the Old Testament is the vindication of Yahweh as the one true and living God whom all people are called and required to worship. And this is evident throughout 
Uh, so much of the Old Testament, if you look at a lot of different portions of the Old Testament, much of it is written as a polemic against the false gods of the surrounding nations. So at that time, the common worldview around the area of Israel is that each nation had its own God, and when a nation would go to war against nation, that was a battle between gods, the God of one nation versus the God of the other. And so much of the Old Testament is written with an eye towards those surrounding nations and kind of jabbing at them, writing against them, and asserting that actually Yahweh is the God above all other gods. Yahweh is the God over all these false gods. He's not just the God over Israel, but he's God over all the nations. And so we just mentioned the Exodus. That's kind of the prime example. It wasn't just God delivering his people out of a foreign land, but actually God is conquering the false gods of Egypt. And again, especially Pharaoh, who's held to be the son of the gods. Uh, and, and, and the Exodus was an a demonstration of God showing his power over the gods of Egypt. This is also true of the conquest of Canaan, God's people, Israel, going out into these pagan nations who were stronger than they were, who were mightier than they were, and them actually conquering and destroying these Canaanite nations, showing that Yahweh is powerful even over their false gods. Um, the wars against the Philistines that David himself took part in, also the same kind of idea. And you guys remember when the Philistines defeated Israel and took the ark and brought it into the temple of their idols. Once the, the ark of the covenant was in the, the temple of the, the Philistine idols, he caused the, the idols to fall down and be shattered. God showing his power, his authority, his dominion over the nations and their gods. Or we think about Elijah with the prophets of Baal. You have hundreds of prophets of Baal calling on him to send down fire and nothing happens. And then Elijah, the lone prophet, calls on Yahweh and fire comes from heavens. And then the rain for the first time in three years follows. Or you see God through the prophets asserting himself as the one who sends Babylon and who sends Assyria. The, the, God sends these empires to judge his people, but he's actually in control and in command of them. Nebuchadnezzar, another example, who thought himself, after he had defeated Judah, he defeated Yahweh's people, but then God shows him, actually, I have all authority, you don't, and you only conquered my people because I let you, because I sent you to do that. So much of the Old Testament is written directly against the gods and the worldview of the surrounding nations to assert that Yahweh is the one and only living and true God. And the Old Testament really is a history of God's victory and of God's vindication of himself as that one true God, the only proper object of worship and the sovereign one over every nation. And it's important for us to remember, because it's easy for, to forget in our context, that in the Old Testament, this was a period of deep global darkness, that true religion, knowledge of the true God was not, uh, was not available over most of the world. God revealed himself to one tiny nation of Israel. They alone had 
true truth. They had the actual truth about God, the one true God. They had true religion and true worship, but the the knowledge of God among the other nations was hidden in deep darkness and under deep deception. The nations were largely left to their own blindness except for Israel. They were that lone light in the world. And it's easy for us to forget about that because in our day, People all around the world know who Jesus is. People all around the world know about the Bible. At that time, knowledge of Yahweh was limited to Israel and to her neighbors that might have heard something about him. But largely, the world was under deep, abiding, pitch darkness. They did not know the truth. And what David is envisioning, and David here, he's not coming up with this out of nowhere, but this is coming from faithful trust on his part in God's promise to Abraham that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. David is envisioning the day where this is no longer the case, where darkness is no longer covering the earth, but where God conquers the darkness, he conquers the false gods, he conquers Satan and his horde, and he makes clear to all people everywhere that he alone is the true in the living God. And again, the Exodus is kind of the archetype of this. That's the small scale blueprint of what God is going to do on the cosmic scale. What God did putting the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh and all the rest to shame and showing the world that he is mighty, he is sovereign, and he saves his people. That's the microcosmic picture of what God is going to do globally. And David trusted in God's promises and he trusted in God's power to fulfill them. And about midway through this psalm, and we're going to zero in some focus here on this portion, David um, calls out attention to one particular location, and that location is Bashan. So verses 15 through 18, we read, O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode, yes, where the Lord will dwell forever? The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord may dwell there. So it's interesting, in a world that was, again, full of darkness, um, Bashan, this location is significant. It was a particular, it was a place that was particularly known for wickedness and idolatry. And the people at David's time would have this, even the mentioning of this location would have evoked certain ideas of darkness and wickedness and lostness for the people of David's day. Even the name itself has its root in the word for serpent. It was the place of the serpent. It was um, just for a kind of geographical location. It was the northernmost portion of the promised land. And it was a place because it was, you know, in the north bordering, you know, Babylonia and Assyria and those pagan empires. It was constantly susceptible to the idolatry of the nations that were bordering it. It was a land that was constantly susceptible to outside influence of false worship. And as a matter of fact, it ended up being one of the locations 
when the northern kingdom of Israel broke off from the southern kingdom of Judah, Bashan was one of the locations where King Jeroboam set up a high place and built that uh, idol for the people to go and worship there. And so this was a place that had deep connotations of wickedness. It was a home to sort of proto-Babylonian false worship. It was originally conquered by Moses, actually, um, un- by, by Israel under Moses when they defeated King Og, who is a deeply wicked figure. And we have um, Joshua 12 mentioned some of this. It says, Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edri and ruled over Mount Hermon and the Selica and all Bashan to the boundary of the Gershwites and the Machathites and over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sihon, king of Heshbon. But Og, when it says there, we're not going to get into the Rephaim and some of the different perspectives on that, and there's a supernatural understanding and a more naturalist understanding. Regardless of what that refers to, it had uh, sinful, dark, demonic associations with the Rephaim. And just overall, there's a description of Og in Deuteronomy 3 where this conquest is recorded. He was a deeply wicked figure. In fact, those who lived in Bashan were one of the populations that God commanded Israel to devote entirely to destruction. Uh, and the boundary, you also saw there in Joshua 12, mention of Mount Hermon, where Og ruled from. That was the boundary of the promised land to the north, was Mount Hermon. And this mountain, again, was a very famous location in the ancient world. And even through archaeological findings, there have been found numerous uh, pagan temples, shrines. This was a place of, you know, intense, wicked, pagan worship. And so, put simply, Bashan had a reputation for deeply abiding demonic wickedness, worship of false gods, and that would have been communicated to the people who who were reading this psalm during the time of David's reign. And it shouldn't be surprising to us that a, a location can carry those kinds of connotations because we use language in a similar way. For instance, if I were to say something like, Hollywood will come to Christ, we wouldn't think of, you know, a geographical point on the map necessarily, or we wouldn't think of a city and everyone in the population. But when I say Hollywood, we think of culture. We think of powerful, influential people. We think of wealth and excess. And so a sentence like Hollywood will come to Christ, you would understand it's not talking necessarily just about this place on the map. It's talking about, you know, more wide, broad ramifications. So think about that, you know, when he, when he talks about Bashan, that it has those sorts of broader connotations. It's not just a geographical location. There's a lot of symbolic significance to that. And so what David here is proclaiming is actually that all the world, which is caught in this deep darkness that Bashan and Mount Hermon represented, this false idolatrous worship, that the world that's caught in the worst kind of idolatry will come under the rule of Yahweh, that all the forces of evil, all the false gods, all wickedness will be routed by the conquering creator. And he proclaims the might of his God, you know, in the, in verse, in verse 15, it's talking about the great heights of the mountain that's full of shrines and full of idolatry. 
and all those temples that, you know, all of that mountain and even Mount Bashan, it's much higher and larger than Mount Sinai or Mount Zion. And so from the perspective of the world, of the pagan world, you have this high, towering, imposing mountain. What's Mount Zion? What's Mount Sinai? These are not significant mountains. But David is here proclaiming, no, no, our God, Yahweh, his chariots are thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, that from the mountain of God will come this conquering army that will overwhelm every enemy. And he paints the picture of this victory procession where the enemy is going to be absolutely humiliated and then paraded before the people, revealing how shameful, how weak, how impotent they are to stand before God, that they are nothing before the strength of the true God. And so what David is envisioning is the day when God will do globally what he did to Egypt. And this vision of David's is clearly and actually explicitly fulfilled in Christ. You can turn over to Ephesians. We're going to spend a little bit of time there later on. But Paul quotes this psalm directly in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. He says in verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So not only does this verse strongly testify to the deity of Christ, Paul taking a verse from the Old Testament ascribed to Yahweh and then applying it directly to Jesus and saying that Jesus fulfills this verse, but also it casts Christ himself as the conquering king who personally, the way that God personally went with uh, Israel and taking them out of the land of Egypt, that Christ is the one who personally goes forth and defeats and puts to shame every false God and every idol. And so this psalm of conquest is directly applied to, and it's seen as fulfilled in Christ. And so we ask, how did Christ accomplish this? How did Christ fulfill this specific vision that David, this specific thing that David was envisioning in Psalm 68? Well, Jesus said of his own ministry, early on in his ministry, he said that he came and that he would bind the strong man and plunder his house. I think we have Mark 3.27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is there talking about how he is casting out demons, he is casting out Satan, in the name of Yahweh, with the authority of Yahweh, that what he's doing is he's not using demonic power to cast out demons, but he is coming with the authority of God to not just cast out demons, but to bind Satan, the strong man, and then once he's bound, to go and plunder that which Satan had held captive. And that's the thing. The Old Testament period, the reason why there's such profuse darkness over the whole earth is because Satan had been given authority under God over the nations all besides Israel, that the nations were deceived. They were held in darkness. He had authority among those nations, and Christ had to Come, conquer and defeat Satan, and then Christ, Christ's people goes, go into the nations and set free those who had been held captive to darkness. In Revelation 20, 
It tells us the effect of Satan being bound, that he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a while. So you see the the impact of Christ's victory over Satan, the impact that binding Satan has is that the nations on the large scale are no longer able to be deceived, that he's no longer able to keep on a broad, large scale the nations in darkness, that that is diminished. The idols of the nations are destroyed and the truth about God, who God is and how he is to be worshiped, goes forth to all people, even those who are trapped in deep darkness. Later on in Jesus' ministry, he proclaimed to his followers after he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God that he saw Satan fall like lightning. The gospel going forth from the mouths of God's people was an indication. It signaled the inevitable defeat of Satan. And then later on in his ministry, at Caesarea Philippi, which in fact is the ancient land of Bashan, Christ says to his people, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. So at the place of the serpent, Christ declares, the gates of hell will not prevail against my people. He is going to go forth. He is going to conquer all the forces of wickedness, all the false gods, all the idols of the nations, and he alone is going to be known and exalted as king of kings, lord of lords, god of gods. And then from there, we're told, after that, Jesus went up a high mountain, which many scholars believe to be the mountain of Bashan, and he took three of his disciples with him on this high mountain, and there he was transfigured. There his glory was revealed, and there the voice of the Father said, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. He is the Son. He is the heir of the nations, the beloved Son of Psalm 2, the only begotten Son of God who is going to inherit all the nations of the earth. And through his death for sin and his resurrection, he finally conquered the great enemy, saying to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, now I have defeated the powers of darkness. I have been given all authority. Now go into the nations that were held in darkness and make disciples and baptize them. The strong man is bound. The nations are set free. And now we go forth and we proclaim the victory of Christ. The resurrection confirmed Jesus to be the ruler and the judge of all the world. Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, Paul says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this judgment, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So for a time, the nations were in ignorance. The nations were in darkness. But now the resurrection has occurred. The king is on the throne. We know that Jesus is Lord. We know that Yahweh is God over all. And so now we are certain that all the nations will be judged by the one king, Jesus Christ. He was vindicated in the resurrection as that rightful king overall. Paul also says in Romans 1.4 that he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. It was the resurrection that declared Christ to be the heir of the nations, the son of God, the rightful king. His work once and for all, conquered and humiliated every false god of all the nations, uh, 
noted in the New Testament as the rulers and the authorities. Colossians 2.14 says that he can't, oh, I meant 15, that's okay. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us, nailing it to the cross, that this that he laid aside the record of debt, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So that by the death and resurrection of Christ, God was showing Jesus to be the true king, and all the rulers and authorities, all the false gods, all the idols of all the nations, he put to shame And so therefore, Christ is King of kings, Lord of lords, ruler of all creation, all things in heaven and on earth. Uh, In Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All the authorities, everything in heaven, everything on earth, all the false gods, all the host of heaven, all the powers and authorities, all things are underneath Jesus Christ. And having done all of this, as I mentioned, his people, we are sent forth into all the nations to proclaim the victory of the one true king, the one who is the light to the Gentiles, who was prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The Gentiles, the nations in darkness have seen a light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. And then verses 6 and 7 To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. He's the light to the nations. He is the light to those in darkness. He is the king, the the descendant of David, who is going to rule on the throne and inherit all the nations. And all of this that we're talking about happens also to be one of the dominant themes of the book of Ephesians. So if you guys are all still turned to Ephesians, we're going to kind of fly through and get almost like a little snippet of this theme as it runs through Ephesians. Because, and we're not just here randomly, in Ephesians, this is where Paul quotes the psalm that we're considering tonight. And so it makes sense that we would find a lot of this in the context surrounding it. So Ephesians is Paul's explanation of the gospel and of his ministry to the Gentiles. It's a generic letter. There's no uh, personal greetings. There's no names of anyone. That's rare among Paul's letters. And he begins by asserting the scope of God's work. And we all know chapter one, that we've been adopted before, you know, uh, elected before the foundation of the world, adopted into his family. Our, the, the blood of Christ has paid for our transgressions. So we know a lot of that from chapter one. Paul, in his explanation of the gospel, asserts that our own personal salvation, this is important, this is essential, this is central to Christ's work, but it's not everything. It's a part of what God is doing. It's not the whole of what God is doing. And at the end of chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, 
He says that we are to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. So as Paul is explaining the gospel, central to it is that Christ, the risen Lord, who saves us from our sins, he is exalted to the right hand of God, seated as the King of kings, and he is over every name that is named in this age and in the age to come. He is over all of creation in heaven and on earth, all nations, every false god, all under his authority. And then after in chapter 2, he explains the union of Jews and Gentiles. He then goes on to explain the mystery of Christ. And Paul's explanation of the mystery of Christ is that the nations, the Gentiles, have always been heirs of the promises of God. They have always been heirs of uh the promise made to Abraham, and that was only brought to light through the work of Christ. So if you look at Ephesians 3, verse 6, he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, that the kingdom of God was never meant exclusively for the Jews. It was always meant for all the nations, that the darkness of the world was always meant to be temporary, that the light of Israel was one day going to be spread to all the nations, all the Gentiles, all those who walked in darkness, and they would inherit the promises made to God's people, as we've been talking about as we're going through Romans. And then he goes on in uh, chapter 3, verse 10. He says, now that this mystery has been revealed through the church, the manifold wisdom might ne- of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So it's not just the role of the church to proclaim the mystery of Christ and to, you know, to proclaim the gospel to those on earth. That is our role. That is what we're called to do. But Paul says here that we are to make the wisdom of God known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Talking again about this cosmic level of what God is doing. That God is putting all the false gods, all the idols, all of the, the, you know, the demonic horde of Satan to shame, exposing them as being powerless before Christ. And we are to make that known. So the question is, how do we make that known? And this is where that quotation of Psalm 68 comes in. And so the context of what Paul's talking about when he quotes from Psalm 68 is the varied gifts that Christ pours out on the church. And Paul describes then the ascension of Christ as the pinnacle of conquest. This is, the ascension is the, the, the procession of military victory. I don't know, do we have 2 Corinthians? I might have forgotten that one. But in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul talks about the procession of Christ, that we spread the fragrance of Christ to all, to some a fragrance of life, to others a fragrance of death. But he describes it as a military procession where the enemy is taken captive, the enemy is publicly paraded before all the people. And so in doing this, that, that was Christ's ascension. And that's the context of Ephesians 4 verse 8 where he's quoting from 68. He ascended on high leading a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That's the quotation of our text from tonight. 
Paul is applying that to the ascension of Christ and then Christ taking the spoils of his victory and distributing them to his people. He gave gifts to men. So through the victory of Christ, remember what Jesus said to his disciples before his crucifixion. It's better for me to go there because if I don't go there, you're not going to receive the helper. Christ's victory, his conquest of death, his conquest of Satan, and his ascension to glory meant that he could now distribute the gift of his victory to his people, namely God the Holy Spirit come to reside in us. It wasn't until Christ finished his work and ascended to the throne that he sent his spirit, poured out on his people. And so the gifts of the spirit, Paul then describes, are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the victory of Christ and the way that we as the people of Christ proclaim Christ's victory to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places are through the manifest gifts of the Holy Spirit, through growing in our understanding, growing in our knowledge, growing in our obedience, and in so doing, by the power of the Spirit, we proclaim the victory of Christ everywhere, and we apply it in every area of life. And in light of all this, maybe you guys have considered this in light of what we've been talking about in Ephesians, but I think this sheds bright light on Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, the full armor of God, when Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, that we are wrestling against things beyond what we see before us in our day-to-day life. We are wrestling against the forces of evil and And through the Holy Spirit, Christ has equipped us with everything necessary to advance and apply his victory in this world. He has empowered us to take on those rulers and authorities and cosmic powers whom he has already conquered. Christ has already defeated them. The victory is already won. Through the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, the enemy is already routed and humiliated. And so we then are confident to engage by the Spirit in Spirit-empowered warfare against the remaining vestiges of darkness found in the earth because we know that God has given the enemy into our hand. You remember in the Old Testament, before David or one of those righteous kings would go out into the army, they would inquire of the Lord and they would ask whether or not the Lord had given the enemy into their hand. Well, we know that God has given the enemy into our hand because he has already defeated the enemy through Christ. And so David describes then the result of Christ's victory at the close of the psalm that we've been considering. We already read it, kingdoms of the earth sing to God. In verse 29, because of your temple at Jerusalem, the kings shall bear gifts to you. He says the nobles will come from Egypt. Cush will come. The vision that David is having and that Christ accomplishes is all the nations trapped in darkness coming to the temple of the Lord, coming to worship the one and only living and true God. That Christ has won. He is the rightful heir of all the nations of the earth. And it has pleased Christ to apply his victory through the means of his spirit-filled people living new lives 
lives, going forth and making disciples. That's what we're called to do. If we would advance the kingdom of God in our lives, in our sphere of influence, and in our generation, we are called to live by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. You know, just before the spiritual warfare passage of Ephesians, we know come Paul's instructions to husbands and wives, children and parents, servants and masters. When we live faithfully in the relationships God has put us in, that is a testimony to the rulers and the authorities that Christ has won the victory. When we live as new men and women in Jesus Christ and we apply that new life to every area of life, every sphere of influence that we have, that proclaims to all. It shows forth Christ's victory and that's the means by which Christ advances his kingdom. It calls us for faithfulness and not for fear during these times. We are to be built up, strengthened, and encouraged and equipped to go forth into the world. And again, just like in this psalm and just like throughout history, it appears that God's people are weak and that the spiritual forces of evil are strong. It appears that we are going to lose and the enemy is going to be victorious, but we know better. We know that Christ has already won and so we should have full and total confidence to go forth and proclaim Christ's victory without fear. This is what it means to walk by faith. See, so often we take walk by faith, and it's to us just a trite verse. It's something that we put on coffee mugs and on pillows, and we don't think about what it actually means. But to walk by faith means that we are actually living our lives confident that Christ is one. We're actually living as if what I'm saying is true. We're living in obedience to Christ no matter what, even when it doesn't seem feasible, even when it seems impractical, even when we don't understand how it's going to work out. Walking by faith means you're going to obey and trust that God is going to bless and honor that. That's what it means. Be confident Christ has conquered the enemy. So don't think that we need to be smarter than God. Don't think that we need to be stronger than God. Don't think that we need to do more than obey God. Don't think that there's ever a context in which we can disregard God's commands, but walk by the power of the Spirit with courage and confidence. And I'll leave you with this. If David looked forward from afar with this kind of confidence that we read in Psalm 68, God will arise and he's going to scatter his enemies. The nations are going to come. David, writing in a time where the nations were lost in darkness, if David can write with that kind of confidence about something that he had not yet experienced, how much more should we be confident who have seen all of this fulfilled, who have seen Christ already win the victory? We have an empty tomb and a risen Lord. So be confident.